you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. As we uh, begun working through Ephesians here the last few weeks, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we have this awesome passage of your word before us at this time. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word and open your word to our hearts and minds and give us understanding in the scriptures. We ask you, Lord, according to your promise, to write your word in our hearts and minds, that we would not be forgetful hearers, but by your grace become effectual doers. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So we have these first ten verses of chapter 2. If you remember from weeks in past, Paul in the first chapter has set forth the the glorious truths of God's sovereign plan, that God works all things according to the purpose of his will. As we read in verse 9, it says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, which he's going to elaborate more in this epistle, uh, that God's pleased to save his elect out of both Jews and Gentiles, uh, but the mystery of his will, meaning his revealed word, according to his good pleasure, no, which he purposed in himself. God's plan and purpose, he didn't check to see what the creature would approve of or would do. He purposed his plan uh, according to his desire. And as he said uh, in the next verse, Paul wrote, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He didn't say he works most things. He said God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means we can trust him in every situation. He is sovereign. Some people choke on the word predestination because they think it somehow tarnishes the dignity of man. You know, it doesn't show man as a, as a creature with free will, able to make his own determinations. The fact of the matter is free will is not taught in the Bible. The Bible says he that sins is a slave to sin. If the Son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed, our Lord Jesus said. And so Paul's going to elaborate on that, but he's talking about the great privilege that we have and how glorious God's plan of salvation is, that he has saved us by his grace. 
and this is going to be our theme throughout eternity to ex- begin to explore the riches of his abundant grace, as he says in this second chapter. So let's pause and take, or not pause, but let's continue on and take a look at the truths that he sets forth. Uh, we see in this third chapter, in these first ten verses, there's really three things. The first is the depth of depravity, how bad off we were and are outside of Christ. And then that's uh, verses one through three, and then four through nine, he shows us the heights of God's love to us in Christ. You know, verse four is so beautiful because after he sets forth the, the bad news, you might say, of us being dead in trespasses and sins, he then has that, that little phrase that many have, have noted and, and preached on, and it's, but God, who is rich in mercy, and then he goes on. God made the difference. He didn't leave us to ourselves. So the second part has to do with the heights of God's love toward us in Christ Jesus, our Savior, verses 1 through 9. And then finally in verse 10, he shows us God's plan and its outworking. Uh, the living for us, living in that resurrected life. What is God doing in our lives? What is God doing in us and for us? And as he says, we're his workmanship. And uh, I've preached on this before, and I think you're, I hope you're familiar with it. That word workmanship, there is the word poimeia. And it actually is the word where the word poetry comes from in the Greek language. Uh, we are his poetry, his po- uh, poimeia. He's working a plan, uh, writing an epic poem to his glory in your life. That's what's going on. So it's pretty awesome once we realize that. But note here first, you know, before we can speak of the good news, we do have to look at the bad news. Uh, and it starts off, you he made alive, and that's good, who were dead in trespasses and sins. In the old Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question one starts off, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it's very beautiful. I'll just go ahead and read it because it's, it's worth hearing. Uh, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What a declaration there. This was uh, first published in 1563 at a time of great persecution when people were being burned alive and uh, slain by the sword or having their heads cut off because they professed faith in Jesus Christ and said he, not the Pope, was the head of the church and that the Bible was God's true word and that anywhere where church tradition or policy contradicted scripture, church tradition and policy were wrong that we were to reform the church based upon the word of God. That's where the word reformed comes from. And now it's more of a denominational title. When we speak of the reformed faith, you know, we, uh, what I'm saying, and I hope you can catch that, is the faith reformed on the Bible, on the word of God. And that's what this catechism was really all about. It was a statement, you know, question and answers is what a catechism is. And it was written uh, to instruct Christians. So this first one sets the tone talks about this great hope that we have both in life and in death. But then question two, and that concerns us today because it goes right along with Ephesians and it reflects chapter two of Ephesians and the book of Romans and many other passages. But it says, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou in this comfort mayest live and die happily? You speak of this hope and this happiness. 
what do you need to know in order to enjoy this? And the answer is three things. I need to know three things. The first, how great my sin and misery is. I need to know what a wretched, trespassing, sinning person I am, dead in trespasses and sins outside of Christ. I need to know that's what I was. If you're not in a saved condition, that's what you are. Secondly, I need to know how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. I need to understand the redemption that God has accomplished. This is what Paul is saying in chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy. And then thirdly, they say, third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. Now, it's interesting because as this was being written with a desire to reflect Scripture, and it's loaded up with Scripture proofs all through it, um, when under the first part, they ask in question three, Whence knowest thou thy misery? And we would say, From where do you know your misery? Then where does that knowledge come from? Very simple answer, out of the law of God. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, I believe it is, it says, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, the law shows us that we're sinners because it says, Thou shalt not, and we do it. And when it says, Thou shalt, we don't do it. And it, the law is like a mirror, as you know the illustration, and it shows us where our sin is. It shows us how, not just dirty, how filthy we are, and how in such a state of spiritual death and anger and warfare against God left to ourselves, uh, we deserve nothing but hell. That's how great our sin and misery is. You need to know that, because if we have illusions of our own personal goodness, then you know, we'll, we're not going to really come to Christ. That's why the system of theology of salvation known as Arminianism is such a pernicious, evil doctrine, because it teaches, well, man fell in every year except his free will. So that means if you're a Christian, according to the Arminians, because you made a choice that someone else just wasn't smart enough or good enough to make. You know, you had some kind of essential goodness in That's why Arminianism always eventually leads to full-blown liberalism, uh, because the idea of the, you know, the exaltation of man. Paul lays man in the dust. He told the Ephesians, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You did nothing to bring about your salvation, as I believe it was Jonathan Edwards said and others, um, except commit the sins that made it necessary. That's the only, that was your contribution. Um, as the one fellow said when he was asked to tell the congregation, you know, what exactly he did to get saved, because everyone was talking about, well, I did this or I did that. And his testimony was, well, I'll tell you what I did to get saved. He said, I ran as fast as I could to get away from Jesus. And then he did his part. He caught me. That's salvation. So Paul says here, we were dead in trespasses and sins. The interesting thing about the Heidelberg Catechism, and I want to preach this second chapter, not the, the Heidelberg Catechism today, but I do want to mention it. When they get to the third part about how I am to live a life of gratitude, how I am to be thankful for such redemption, as uh, they said, that's where the exposition of the Ten Commandments is found in the Heidelberg. So they, they look to the law of God as a rule of life. It convicts, it has that convicting aspect of it. It has the didactic part, shows us how we are to live. And that's why one of the aspects of the reformed faith, faith reformed on scripture, as Paul said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another principle or law at work within me, bringing me into bondage to the law of sin that's in my memory. So Paul had this struggle, but he loved the law of God. If you read Psalm 119, as David wrote that about the love of, of God's law. So 
Uh, salvation is not what we call antinomian. It's not that, well, we, we, we now we can do whatever we want to because we're saved by grace. That's not the, the teaching of the Bible. God writes his law in the hearts and minds of his people, and he g- gives us that. So we learn to be covenant keepers. The two great commandments are, from Matthew 22, we're to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And sometimes we think, yeah, I do that. No, you don't. That's the whole purpose of by the laws and knowledge of sin. You don't love God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the law. Jesus said all the laws are summarized in those two commandments. By the laws, the knowledge of sin. You know, the, And the problem is, is that we don't love God as we should. And we're not troubled by that. We don't dedicate our lives to God's service. Even as Christians, we're so sloppy in our obedience, and it doesn't really trouble us that much. And that shows that there's a lot of work yet to be done in us. It ought to be very troubling to us that we don't love the Lord as we should, that we don't begin our days with prayer, that we neglect to read his word and you know cry out to God to give us grace to obey it. So there's a lot of work to be done. Well, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, he wasn't writing to beat them down. He wanted them to know, here's what God d- did for you, but you need to understand your condition. You know, if you have, like, you know, leprosy the way it was in the Bible, and you came to Jesus and he healed you, if you understood what leprosy was and you struggled with it for a long time, and all of a sudden you're changed, you're healed, you're clean now, you're going to be grateful. The, the fellow that Jesus did that for in the story of the, the leper, he went out and told everybody. He couldn't, wouldn't shut up about what Jesus had done for him. Uh, and so when you change, you're, you're grateful. If you know the depth of your depravity, and that's what Paul says. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Let's look at what he says. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's in opposition to God. It says in Romans chapter 8, the carnal mind, that is the mind of the flesh, a mind that's in a person that's never been born again by the Spirit of God, is enmity against God. It's in a state of animosity and open warfare against God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man, and literally in the original it's the soulish man, psychikos anthropos, the soulish man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. So if you're just in a state of, of you know, being a soulish man, or sometimes called the natural man, you're not going to receive it. Paul says, for, because they're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He also said he can't enter it unless you've been born again. But you can't see it if you're in a state of spiritual death. So we note this, being spiritually dead I mentioned this last week because it came up in the former chapter a little bit. Uh, being spiritually dead doesn't mean you're neutral toward God. It, in this case, he says you walked, you were active according to the course of this world. And by that, it's not, you know, John 3.16 world, for God so loved the world, or Genesis, you know, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. It's talking about the world as the kingdom of man, as Augustine would have called it. Um, to, to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, He's talking about Satan there. He said, you walked according to Satan's desires. You did what the devil wanted you to be doing. Whether you knew it or not, that's what you were doing when you were living apart from God. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
So the devil is active. God has given him limited authority in this world, and he does work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also, Paul says, we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And then he adds this, and of the mind. talks about fleshly lust and intellectual lust. Now you say, well, what is intellectual lust? Well, what do you give your mind to? What has your mind been given over to? What has captured your imagination? That's why Christians need to be wise and aware. You know, I love literature. I love reading, you know, good books. I like good stories. And it's great to read, you know, various things. I like classical literature more so. Um, It's okay to read literature. But if you have something that captures your imagination then you need to go to God. One of the things that I uh, mentioned Augustine, or Augustine if you're a university graduate, uh, uh, St. Augustine, as he's often called, one of the things he said is that when he began to read the scriptures, they seemed dull to him because he had, was so immersed in classical literature that it, it read so well and it was so entertaining and it just was so in, enthralling or and just thrilled him uh, when he read it. We started reading scripture said it seemed kind of dull because it's very straightforward and uh, it's telling of the story of redemption. But then finally God did a, a work of grace in him and he began to see, ah, this other stuff is good in its place, but if it captures your mind and imagination and takes you away from Scripture, it's not good. When was the last time you sat down and read through a book in the Bible in, in, in whole? When did, was the last time you sat down and read from Genesis chapter 1 through 50? When was the last time you read a gospel uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You may say, well, I do that all the time. If you do, praise God. That's his mercies to you. But I'm just trying to point this out because I challenge myself on this too. It's so easy to drift away from the word of God. Paul, in describing the man of sin, he says that for this reason God will send them strong illusion, a delusion rather, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Paul's talking about how God gives uh, give, gave the people over to wickedness. But they received not the love of the truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. And our sanctification has to do with the word of God. And by the way, I'm not trying to scold anybody here. I'm just as you know sloppy as anybody else. And we have to continually go to God and say, Lord, give me grace. Lord, help me to love your word. Help me to, to really learn the scriptures. And they're not dull, by the way. The more you get into God's word, you begin to find out that's where the excitement really is. That's because you're reading the, the word of the living God. But it's important here. Paul talks about that we, we also walked, according, as he said, according to the course of the world, under the influences of Satan himself and the devil and his hordes. And then he reminds the Ephesians, that it's not just, oh, well, those guys. He said, no, no. And no, well, Paul writes this. Among whom also we all, Jews and Gentiles, individuals. Paul doesn't say you all. He says among we all. So Paul includes himself in that category. And you can be sure Paul wasn't a big reader of pagan literature, okay? But he was steeped in a whole lot of religious verbiage that it was not in the Bible, uh, with all the traditions of the elders, you know, Paul was a Pharisee, and that's what they were into. But he said, we ourselves, we walk according to the lust of our flesh, that is our fleshly desires and breaking God's law, and of the mind. We allow things to capture our minds and control us. 
And that was the devil himself at work there. So be aware of that, okay? We're not going to be burning books and things like that. But you need to be aware. What captures your imagination controls your life. And if you're allowing, you know, things to get a hold of your thoughts where that's all you think about or all you want to do, you need to go to God. Because Paul describes this as a bad thing. It's, a, it's, it's an indication perhaps of an unregenerate heart. So we need to go and say, Lord, help, help me to get all the garbage out of my life, fleshly lust and intellectual ones, and help me to really give myself, because I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our mind belongs to God. Let's use it properly. He says, and we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. So Paul said, you know, we, it's something we were just a little bit better. You know, we, we exercised our free will, that little bit spark of goodness that was in us. We were not stupid like those other people. We were smart enough to make use. No, he doesn't say that. He said, we were on our way to hell the same as everybody else. We were hell-deserving sinners who sinned against God. Isaiah said it best. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You know, Isaiah didn't write and say, most of you guys, but he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's what Paul's saying here. And we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now, that's the bad news. We could go on. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Romans 3, it describes the depravity of the human heart that we looked at last week. But then he, after letting them know, here's the condition you were in. But here's what God did. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, God loved us even when we were in this hateful, hell-deserving condition. When we didn't care about his word, when we didn't care anything about his kingdom, we didn't care anything about his honor, anything about his glory. We wanted to live for ourselves as selfish little monster creatures that had no use for God. And in the midst of our condition, that fallen condition, God loved us. Paul says in Romans, for God uh, commends his love to us, and that while we, were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in that condition, Jesus Christ came into the world to die for our sins. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, and he just described that. We walked according, we were doing Satan's desires and the lust of our own hearts, physically and intellectually. In the midst of that, God loved us and sent his son to save us. He made us alive together with Christ. Now, the interesting, that word made us alive together, it's one word in the Greek. He co-quickened us with Christ. And say, so, well, when did that happen? When Jesus Christ rose from the dead. By grace you have been saved. It's in his hands, not yours. That's what he's saying. And raised us up together. That raised us up together, or raised up together. Uh, note again. Uh, raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That raised up together, it's one word, raised together, co-raised, and then co-seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look around, you might not be too terribly surprised if I tell you you're not yet seated in glory. And yet Paul says you are. You, know, you say, well, is this, this is it. No, not necessarily right now, but you're you're federal head, the covenant head of the new covenant who represents you, he is seated at the Father's right hand. He is risen from the dead, never to die again. He is ascended to heaven. Uh, he is there. He's raised us up together with him. He made us alive together. That is when Jesus Christ was quickened and came 
alive, took his, his life back to himself, and the Father and the Spirit also raised him up on the third day. That was your resurrection. Now, you have a future resurrection as the application of that. We look forward to that. And Jesus said time and again, he that believes in, in, in Christ, that Jesus will raise him up on the last day. That's in uh, John chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be raised. There will be a resurrection. We look forward to that. But you've already been raised because the one who represents you, the one legally who is you, was you at the cross, also uh, is or was you at the resurrection. So God views you as one who's died and been raised. That's why the Holy Spirit is pouring out grace into your life now because you're viewed as one who has died and risen again. And according to this passage, he seated us together in the heavenly places, that is the heavenly realms, in Christ. How did he do that? By having the one who represents you, who legally is you, seated at the right hand of God in heaven. That means your position in Christ, or your position before God, is secure, because it is the security of Jesus Christ himself. Your head, that is the head of the church, your federal or covenant, the word federal means covenant, by the way, uh, your federal head is seated at the right hand of God. He represents you there. There he prays for you. He intercedes for you. And we're experiencing the outworking of all of that now. You are, in God's eyes, you're already in heaven. That's how assured you are. Remember in Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. Whom he predestinated, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. It's like... That's great. So, but we're not yet in a state of at least physically being glorified. What's that? Jesus is glorified, and you are in Him, and He is in you. You're joined to Him by God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration, and legally, forensically, you belong to Christ. And so, that's just what Paul, I think, is really emphasizing here. That there's a purpose in this, though. That in the ages to come, and he's talking about ages. There means eternity. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ to Jesus. God's plan and purpose is to show in your life, in your salvation, how rich and abundant his grace really is. And that's what eternity will be about, is, is knowing and experiencing the goodness of God, the joy of the Lord, his love toward his people who he redeemed through the blood of his Son. And then we have these very famous verses, and uh, I hope you know them by heart. In verse 8, <clears throat> Paul then lets them know, For by grace you have been saved. You didn't do anything. That You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were, you were serving Satan. You were you know, walking with the devil. You didn't know it necessarily, but you didn't care either. He says that was your condition. You were fulfilling the lust of the flesh and of the mind. You were at enmity against God, he says elsewhere. He said, but by grace you have been saved. God loved you in that condition, but he didn't leave you in that condition. By grace, <coughs> excuse me, you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. You didn't bring this about. That faith isn't something that you created out of your heart. God gave you the gift of faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God's the one that created the faith in your heart. So if you can say today, and I hope you can, by God's grace, I am trusting in Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. And I'm willing to stake eternity on who He is and what the Bible says about Him. Because I believe it's true. The Holy Spirit is born witness with my spirit that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
and that he is the Savior who died for sinners, and I fully qualify for that program. All right, and he rose again for us. He's seated at the Father's right hand, and he's coming again to get us. I believe that. I know I belong to the Lord. When I die, I know I'll be present with him, and my body will rest in the ground till the last day when Christ raises me up incorruptible and conforms me to his image, body, soul, and spirit. 100% I'll be with him throughout eternity. I believe that. If you can say that, you didn't do that. The Holy Spirit did that in you. God gave you that faith. He uses means to bring it about, the word of God, the preaching of the gospel, prayer, fellowship. He does uses you know the application of his word. He uses many ways to bring it about. But the fact is, it's his work. For by grace, that's undeserved favor. You know the definition of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have nothing in ourselves we can boast of. But as, as Paul says in uh, Corinthians, and it's worth reading, so we'll turn there. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul says, uh, for you see, this is chapter 1, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble of nobility are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. He's talking about us. We're the weak, foolish things of the world. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. So don't feel bad if you feel like, you know, you're not being respected as you ought to be or something like that. God's chosen the things that are despised and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. See, it's God. He doesn't look at your condition or your status. He says you know, that he's loved you with an everlasting love. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. But of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became that, who is Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that is being bought out by the blood of Jesus Christ and belonging to God. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That word uh, glory there can also mean boast. The one who wants to boast, and it's really an imperative in the original there. He's not just saying he who glories, eh, maybe you should glory in the Lord. He who glories at the command, let him glory in the If you want to boast, boast in Jesus, boast in the Lord. He's your everything. He did it all for you. He gets all the glory and all the praise. And if you can do that, that's God's gift to you. That's what he's saying. For we are his workmanship, his poimea, the epic poem to his glory as your life, created in Christ Jesus. It's good that he used that word. Because when you're created, it means that's not something you did. That's something God did for you. And if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God called us out of darkness into life. He called us out of death into life. Jesus said, He that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. John 5, 424, I believe. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works or unto good works. God didn't just save you and expect you to sit idle. He has things he wants you to do. He wants you to serve him. Whatever your vocation is, when you go to work tomorrow or today even, whatever, I'm not sure what your your job entails, 
Do that under the Lord. Be the best, whatever your job is, there is for Jesus. All right. If you're, you know, whatever it is you're doing, do it as unto the Lord. You know, this idea that, well, I have a secular, there's no such thing as a secular job. If you've got a job, it's because Jesus put you there. If you're working in the home, if you're a mom raising children, if you're a wife, you know, taking care of things for your, your family and your home, you're there because God put you there. Serve Him in that capacity. That's what He's saying. God created us unto good works, which God prepared beforehand. Again, we see His predestinating sovereign power. Your life is what it is because of God's grace. I'm talking about all the good things and the grace given to you. God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. We started off walking. He says, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Talking about the devil. We walked that way, but he says, no, God's got a different plan for you in Christ. He's ordained you to, unto good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So we've got some walking to do. And may God be pleased to bring that about. So we can know how great our sin and misery is, how we're redeemed from our sins and misery. And then part three here is how to be grateful to God or be thankful. And may our lives be that of gratitude as we walk in obedience to him. So we have a whole lot of things to praise God for in his mercies and a whole lot of things to pray about. If you're like me, you probably have a few things you need to repent of and say, Lord, I really want to serve you and I, I don't want to be just doing things that are displeasing to you. I want to honor you in my life. Please work this in me. I just read a passage that tells me, Lord, you have to do this. So please do it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to bring about what your word uh, tells us is your desire for your children. We pray you'd forgive us all our sins, cleanse our hearts, work within us for your glory. Help us, Lord, wherever you have been pleased to place us, to be faithful to you and to honor you in our vocations. Forgive us our many sins. Forgive us for not living lives of gratitude to you. But work in us, Lord, and, and uh, change us where we need to be changed. Conform us to the image of your Son. Fill our hearts with love, with gentleness and grace, Lord, we pray, that we might honor you in our words in our actions and in our thoughts. For we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.